Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Great to have you back, John. Yeah, no, this is, this is a cameo. I'm still on leave, but uh, you brought George <laughs> Will into the scene. I got to stop by to talk to George Will, who, by the way, we will be with in just a couple of minutes. But uh, first, I wanted to, Rick, you're, you know, I wanted to come back in here. I noticed that we had in Iowa uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, um, you know, almost mano a mano. It is a remarkable scene, maybe a preview of the general election. Is All hundred forty something years of their combined age yeah. together, they're, they're representing the future. Well, we don't know if it's the if it's the future uh, matchup that we're going to be talking a lot about between now and next fall. But we do know that these guys can't stop talking about each other. John, I am struck by how much Joe Biden needs Donald Trump at this moment, and how much Donald Trump seems to need Joe Biden. How many times did uh, did because Bi- this was interesting because Biden. Did, did an old-fashioned media thing, which made him seem very media savvy, yeah. but it was very much out of the playbook of, like, the 1980s. Uh, he, re- he released a copy of his speech, an embargoed uh, copy of his speech, um, well in advance right. of, of even going to Iowa, and then had it had it uh, had the embargo lift at 6 a.m., so it could be in the morning shows. The speech wasn't until much later that day. Um, and how many times did he mention Trump's name? The prepared remarks, I think, were 76. In the actual remarks, did he... It depends on how you count it. If you include pronouns, he was close to 100. He's and him's and that, the president. Count? Well, yeah, close. he's talking it's about close. him, yeah. Close. Okay, so um, Trump took note of that. Uh, and, 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 and as he was preparing to go to Iowa, you know, he left the White House aboard Marine One like he does, and he stopped by to take some questions uh, from the White House press corps and see seem to have Biden on his mind. Take a listen. Now, I have to tell you, he's a different guy. He looks different than he used to. He acts different than he used to. He's even slower than he used to be. So I don't know. But when he mentions my name that many times, I guess I should be complimented. I mean, what, what's, he, what's he trying to say about Joe Biden? Not too subtle, is it? Uh, not too subtle. He, he, he's, he, I think he's He's doing what he's done before when he tried to kind of almost mini focus groups, some different lines of attack. He seems to have uh, centered on this idea of him being past his prime. Sleepy Joe, as he's called him. Uh, He's still trying things out and trying to figure out where it is. But he feels like that's the way to define him as over the hill, which is rich coming from a president who himself is uh, the oldest man, uh, first elected president. He also suggested that Biden's not particularly smart. No, I'd rather run against, I think, Biden than anybody. Uh, I think he's the weakest mentally. And I like running against people that are weak mentally. I think Joe is the weakest up here. The other ones have much more energy. And, and just to give you a little taste of, of Biden when he got around to, uh, uh, to giving the speech, um, let's, just do, let's just do two, two quick clips. Uh, one, he's talking about how what, what a major threat Existential threat, I think, was the phrase. He was I believe using. that's right. Um, uh, to the uh, to the republic, I guess, or to our way of life. Well, take a listen. I believe that the president is literally an existential threat to America for three reasons. One, uh, he is a genuine threat to uh, our uh, our core values. And then he he did have a few more beyond the, the wall, but, but you get the idea. And and uh, by the way, the literally is a good thing to get back in in the mix. That's a that's a classic uh, Bidenism. But Biden is also suggesting that Trump isn't particularly smart. I don't think the president really gets the uh, gets the basics. Uh, he thinks these tariffs are being paid by China, just like he thinks Mexico is building a wall. Um, 
He's an amazing guy, isn't he? <laughs> Joe, be kind. <laughs> but, but, you know, I got to say, so for, for all the back and forth, we, we have had, the, you know, look, we, you and I had that discussion with Nate Silver before I started uh, taking my, my, my leave here um, about, about early polling yeah. and how it's not particularly reliable. You know, Nate points out that about half, about half the time the polls this time actually show, you know, who the, who the candidates are going to be. Um, so they're not entirely useless, but but the you know but but early polling is you know not much has happened. But the early polling does show that Trump basically is getting trounced across the board, not just the overall national polls, which are meaningless, but but also state by state polling. And then you've had uh, the reporting, which we and others have done about this uh, internal poll that the Trump campaign has done. Tony Fabrizio, uh, who is uh, the campaign's pollster. Uh, did 17 battleground states and found Trump really getting beat badly almost across the board. And uh, there, there were some stories about that. And then the, the more recent story, really a fascinating and story in the New York Times, was that the, um, that the president has instructed his aides to not talk about the bad polling or to lie about it, to basically say, say we're winning everywhere. Right. Um, and and I can tell you, Rick, that um, in, in in my conversations with with uh, with folks at the campaign, the, the way that they talk about the polling, and part of it's for our consumption, but I think a big part of it is for Trump's consumption, is saying, um, you know, this is this is how the uh, how it looks state by state, but once you define the Democratic opponent the way we will define them, Trump ends up winning. So he might be losing in state X. In just a, you know, would you vote for Biden or would you vote for Trump? But when you tell people things about Biden that we will be saying about Biden, he's in favor of sanctuary cities, he's this, that, the other thing, uh, the, 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 the numbers change. And that's what they're telling the president. But he, the president seems very sensitive to this idea uh, that, that, that he is behind. Yeah, and you can translate that roughly as when you poll, we lose. When you push poll, we win. If you directly tell people reasons that you shouldn't vote for the other guy right before you ask them where they're going to vote for it, you have a chance. But it gets to the, the core of two presidential obsessions. One is the polls, as you mentioned. He loves the horse race. He, he does not like it when he's down. He doesn't like being tagged as a loser. He has a lot of right to be skeptical of the polling yes, given, the, yeah. given the 2016 example. But the other thing is his obsession, uh, his, his compulsion with labeling, with branding with insulting around that and the mileage that he got out of uh, low energy jab and uh, and and lion ted and and little marco and of course crooked hillary it meant something and he is now figuring out how he goes after biden and in the process maybe elevating biden because the story the storylines otherwise as we've been covering is biden with his problems on his left flank having to move on abortion having to shift for a changing party biden loves the idea that he can engage with trump at this level go mano a mano with the man that is the president of the United States, that builds him up at this moment that uh, he still has a lot of work to do as we enter debate season. And, and you've pointed out that, that Biden has uh, been making this argument essentially that Trump is an aberration. Right. And that, you know, most Republicans are OK. Uh, you know, not, not, not that he's endorsing other Republicans, but, 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 he's, but he's kind of like said that uh, Trump is even 
just way off base uh, in, in in comparison to uh, to where the Republican Party is. Yeah, and this is, I think, a critical distinction that you're going to see play out. To most of the the Democrats who are running for president right now, the Republican Party is the Trump Party. The Trump Party is the Republican Party. That'll get yeah. into our conversation with George Will in, in a few minutes. But take a listen to how he handled this. He was testy on the rope line in Iowa when asked about this this sense that uh, you need wholesale new leadership uh, to to change Washington. And the idea is that we got to have a new system. The same people say we got to have somebody totally new. We got to change the system. Well, guess what? Systems work pretty damn well. It's called the Constitution. It says you have to get a consensus to get anything done. And if you can't get a consensus, guess what? Power flows to the president and abuse of power takes place. So this sense that he is is bringing to voters that we can return to a sense of normalcy and we can work with Republicans uh, if, if in a post-Trump era. He has said and has said in recent days that a lot of Republicans, most Republicans know better and they're going to change their behavior. You've got others who are saying, look at Merrick Garland and look at the, the obstructionism in the Senate and look at the way Obama was treated. It's not realistic to think Republicans are going to change their tune. And they are the Trump Republican Party right now. You can't divorce them from it. Which was the entire Democratic strategy in the midterms That's was right. to tie these people to Trump. That's right. So it's an interesting. Also, he, uh, so Biden said uh, that he floated a tagline, make America America again. Yes. Make America America. And he also said, make America moral again. Mama instead of yeah. MAGA. I don't know. The, I, I think, was, wasn't there an Avenatti thing on this make America America again? Ooh, you're right. You're so right. So tell me about so, that. I, well, Michael Avenatti, when he was floating the, around the, the once a little bit. presidential possible maybe candidate before he's, you know, and now whatever. not. Yeah. And now not. Yeah, he talked about that as, as a possibility. I, I've struck. He actually said those words. He right? did. The actual words were, were spoken by Michael Avenatti. Does um, that mean that Biden was. Well, no, don't use the word. Don't use okay. the, the P word. Uh, I, I think, I think though, the, the bigger problem for me when I hear Biden talking like that is any sense of moving backward. Because if you talk to the modern Democratic Party right now, making America great again or America again or anything again It sounds again, like it's a, it's a conservative thing. It's like a turning back the clock. It presumes that things used to be better. And I don't know and I, I don't get the sense that to many Democratic primary voters – Things used to be all that much better, even during the Obama-Biden years, by the way. There's a lot of frustration about how things were handled. And for this new, vibrant, diverse class of candidates and voters both, the idea of turning back the clock, any clock, whether that's 10 years or 50 years, however you want to position Biden versus Trump, not necessarily compelling. Although I, I think you'd find a pretty healthy percentage of Democrats that wouldn't mind turning back the clock to Obama. They'd be OK with that. Okay. Most, most, <laughs> yeah, but mean, not all. Uh, uh, there's a surprising number for, for whom even that is a, is a tale of missed opportunity. All right. We've got to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to have George Will right here in the studio with us on Powerhouse Politics. All right. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Joining us now is the great... George Will. George, it's an honor to have you uh, back here at ABC News joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Good to be with you. You're out with a uh, light new book um, (laughs) (laughs) called uh, The Conservative Sensibility. Um, And I want to get to that, but I want to ask you a bigger picture of question about conservatism. And I know you you get at this in, in the book, but is what you have written about for all these years um, is is the what we used to call the conservative movement is it dead 
the conservative movement is divided, and not down the middle. They, there are far fewer classic American conservatives than we thought there were, and then I wish there were. Uh, it's not dead. No movement with the intellectual pedigree of Madison and Hamilton and Jefferson and Lincoln and Friedrich Hayek and all the rest dies because the political party that was for a while, the vessel carrying it, goes slightly mad. Uh, <laughs> and that, that's what's happened. That's what's, of course that's what's happened. Uh, for example, free trade has been a standard conservative belief. It's one of the reasons it so obviously works. It's one of the reasons the economics profession is one of the few academic fields that's moved to the right in the last 50 years. Uh, Mr. Trump comes in and says, by the way, you're not for free trade anymore. And they say, okay, that's essentially it. They say, well, we're actually for free trade, but there's an emergency. Or we're actually for free trade, but we mean fair trade. They're not for free trade anymore. Now, when core beliefs like that are shed the way a snake sheds its skin, uh, something has gone badly wrong. I mean, does government get any bigger and bossier than when it tells the American people what they can buy in what quantities and at what prices? Does government get any more deranged than it gets when a president is allowed to raise taxes unilaterally, which is what tariffs are, taxes paid at the border by Americans, and Congress, having shed this power, mews and complains but does nothing about it? How, how has – so, so you, you, you see the problem as predating Donald Trump. Much. For 100 years, Jonathan, the yes. Congress has been shedding power. People say presidents are usurping power. If only they had to. The fact is Congress has been spinning off powers to the presidents, spinning off with it accountability and all the drudgery of making trade-offs in life, and letting the executive branch, headed by the president, become enormously swollen. So you don't mention the words Donald Trump in this entire book. I don't mention Doris Day either. <laughs> Neither of them have, have much to do with American conservatism. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Uh, uh, you do mention other, other self-styled conservatives. You do have some, uh, a lot of praise for Barry Goldwater as, yes. as, the, uh, as the man who really brought modern conservatism to the fore. Uh, so if it isn't Trump who, in your, in your mind, personifies or exemplifies in any way the problems with conservatism, who is it? Where do you see things having gone off track inside the conservative movement? Well, if by inside the conservative movement you mean people in public office. People in, let's start there. Sure. They're pretty thin on the ground. But I would take uh, two, for example, in the Senate. Ben Sass, a Yale uh, Ph.D. in history, thoughtful, reflective. Uh, and I would also take Pat Toomey, who has the institutional pride of a senator that Madison counted on to keep the equilibrium between the institutions. Madison assumed that men and women in the Senate uh, would not become teammates of the president. They would have their own interests and their own uh, institutional loyalty. So why is it, in your view, that so many people who describe themselves as conservative, who, I don't know, maybe even George Will would have written columns about them being conservatives in the past, people like Mike Pence, people like Paul Ryan, are all in for President Trump. Are they wrong about conservatism? Are they wrong about Trump? Are they lying to themselves? Are they lying to the public? Yes, 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 and yes. When uh, Paul Ryan endorsed Mr. Trump on the 2nd of June 2016, the next morning I came in and became an unaffiliated Maryland voter. Uh, Paul knows better. He actually knows who Hayek is. Uh, all that's, when these, you, that's when you left the Republican Party? Yes, it was the morning. Because I said, if Paul Ryan, who's a cheerful, happy, intelligent, uh, 
good, informed fella is going to go all in on this guy, then the party has decided to become a Trump party, which it is. It's more homogenized today for Trump than it ever has been since Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, wanting to get back in the White House, went to war with his protege, the incumbent president, William Howard Taft. This split in the Republican Party rose again in the 1940s, Taft against Dewey. In the 50s and 60s, it was Goldwater against the Rockefeller Republicans. There's no split in the Republican Party now because they are all in, you know the numbers, at 500-day 500, 500 mark of the Reagan presidency, he had the support of 77% of Republicans, 500-day mark of the Trump presidency, he had the support of 87%, and it's higher today. I mean, this is something that Trump actually is completely telling the truth on when he talks about the level of support that he enjoys among Republicans. Absolutely right. I mean, it's not just Republican office holders. Obviously, it's Republican voters. How, how did it happen? Why did it happen? Why Donald Trump? Why Donald Trump? Well, remember. I mean, why, why, why could Donald Trump grab a hold of this party in a way that any of the towering Republican figures that we've grown up with, how? how why? It, it helped that, and progressives and the Democrats should take note, it helped that the Republicans had, what, 17 people on stage at the beginning of the nominating right. process, and the most lurid stood out. Mr. Trump did not get a majority of the votes in the primaries, but he, he won because a lot of winner-take-all primaries. But beyond that, uh, Mr. Trump's manner appeals to people. A lot of people say, well, we ought to impeach him for being a bore. He promised to be a bore. This is <laughs> promise keeping that he was going to overturn the norms. Furthermore, never in American history before 2016 had we nominated a major party presidential candidate whose unfavorables were higher than their favorables going into September. In 2016, we nominated two. And the winner, who, of course, lost the popular vote by five times more, approximately, than Gore lost the po- uh, than Bush lost the popular vote to Gore, uh, snuck in because of 78,000 votes spread over three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Do you, do you view any of the ends as being worth the means? You no, talk to many no. cons- There's a lot of conservatives that will I point know. to judges, but deregulation. Gorsuch, they say. But Gorsuch. But Gorsuch, yeah, but the, and also deregulation and the tax cut. Okay. Any Republican president would have cut taxes. Barack Obama wanted to cut the corporate tax. Any Republican president would have nominated judges from a list vetted by and approved by the Federalist Society. Any Republican president would have had a deregulation agenda. So what we're getting, the good parts of Trump are reflexive Republican programs. What what Trump brings that's novel is the coarseness and the name-calling, and the playground pugilism that uh, is, in my judgment, will do more lasting damage to the country than Nixon's surreptitious burglaries did. Those we cleaned up, punished, and moved on. You can't unring the bell. You can't unsay what he has now said is acceptable discourse in the United States. So what do you think this next election looks like? (laughs) Well, the Democrats... uh, sometimes seem determined to prove that 2016 was not a fluke, that they can help reelect Donald Trump again. Uh, brute fact is he's never reached 50 percent public approval. It's hard to elect a president like that. Uh, it's easy to see him lose, say, Pennsylvania. I don't know what he replaces Pennsylvania with. 
if he thinks it's going to be New Mexico, A, that's not big enough. Oregon B, now. Then. Oregon, yes, of course. <laughs> but but does, that, does that mean the Democrats, when you say they could, they could relive 2016 over and over again and, and show that that wasn't a fluke, is, it, is the Democrats' concern, should their concern be going too far left, going socialism, going Bernie Sanders, going Elizabeth Warren? I carry in my wallet. Your Princeton wallet. A little, nice. a, a little wa- uh, card here. And I'm going to need a bigger card. On it, I jot down all the things they're for that the country either doesn't care about or thinks cumulatively are weird. Let's see. Prisoners, including the Boston Marathon terrorists who are in prison, should be allowed to vote. We should end private health insurance. That's a way to start a campaign. Let's offend 180 million Americans right out of the bat. Pack the Supreme Court. Abolish the Electoral College. Everyone knows the Electoral College is not going to be abolished because 13 small states can and will stop a constitutional amendment. Oh, let's see. The Green New Deal. Let's end airplanes and meat. Let's impeach the president. Let's have reparations for slavery. And as I say, I'm going to need a bigger card. So the concern is they go that direction. Is that, does, can Trump beat that platform? Yes. Will he? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. I mean, that's as they say in baseball. That's why they play the games. But uh, right now, the Democrats seem determined to make it easy to vote for him. So uh, you're a, you're a Madisonian, and 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 um, uh, his his friend Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, and we were coming up on the Fourth of July. Do you like that? Do you like that? Uh, pretty good. That, that, that <laughs> pretty, pretty good. <laughs> um, uh, the, um, uh, the 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 president has kind of reimagined the Fourth of July celebration here in uh, in in Washington D.C. Uh, and he's going to be giving a big speech. He's also there's going to be fireworks apparently. So I've heard um, fireworks on the Fourth of July. <laughs> yes, what yeah. will they think of next? <laughs> and John Stamos is on. Yeah. So um, what do you what do you what 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 are your Fourth of July plans? And what do you make of this president kind of like taking this 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 kind of celeb- this this American celebration and making it into a. Uh, something of a Trump celebration this Well, July. maybe it's just me, but yeah. I don't have the feeling that there's insufficient attention being paid to the president. <laughs> any president, for that matter. <laughs> Presidents are far too central in our lives at any given time, yeah. and this one particularly is ubiquitous. And maybe, just maybe, it'd be nice to have a Fourth of July where we thought about John Adams and those folks rather yeah. than those. You, you remember what <clears throat> Henry Adams said, that the Succession of presidents from Washington through Grant disproved the theory of evolution. <laughs> you can update that at your leisure. So I want to talk baseball here as we, uh, as we come upon summer and uh, the Nationals about a bit of a rebound. Uh, what is more endangered in your mind as you watch the state of politics and the state of baseball, the starting pitcher or the conservative movement? <laughs> they're, they're both in parlous condition. Uh, baseball has problems. In fact, I'm <clears throat> contemplating my next book being on uh, what's wrong with a game where in 2018 <clears throat> you had more strikeouts than hits when there's about four minutes now between the ball being put in play, uh, when f- the average TV viewer of a baseball game watches for 50 minutes and goes away. Something must be done about the pace of play. So I may go back to something I care more about than <laughs> I only write about politics to support my baseball habit. <laughs> are there easier answers in politics than there are in baseball? Because I don't see them as a fan of both. No, baseball's solvable. That's what I like about it. 
Well, you do the relief pitcher <laughs> thing, right? You say you, you have to pitch to at least three batters. That's one that, thing that, that, that could that 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 solves a little bit. Yep. What else? Make the batters stay in the batters box. Mm-hmm. They do that in little league. John Miller, great broadcaster, uh, recently watched a kinescope of the, I think it was Game 7 of the 1953 World Series, Dodgers-Yankees. Not once did a batter step out of the batter's box. Not once. Wow. Give you another statistic. The commissioner is fond of this one. 1960 World Series. I know you're a Yankee fan and you don't like to hear about this. That that didn't end well for us. Uh, Ten to nine game. Game seven. Bill Mazeroski wins it with a walk-off home run. You know how many strikeouts there were in that game? How many? Zero. Wow. No one struck out. Now, one pitcher was 5'6", Elroy Face, and another was 5'8", Bobby Shantz. Game's different. It's been overwhelmed by velocity. There's a fungible warehouse full of guys who are 6'5 and throw 95. And it's changed the game and something must be done. Will's sovereign solution to this, which all my friends in baseball say is nuts, but I'm right and they're wrong, is to expand the strike zone, raise it large. If you raise it to back where it was when Ted Williams hit 406, by the way, that is up to the shoulders. The whole launch angle revolution goes away. You can't use a launch angle at a pitch around the shoulders. And you get back to a game with a room for Wade Boggs and Tony Gwynn and Rod Carew and people like that. Why did it change? I mean, why did the strike zone get smaller? Uh, The umpires liked it and the players liked it because the the pitchers didn't like it. The players liked it because it's easier to golf a a low pitch. And the uh, owners wanted offense. Well, now they've got offense. We had a game, what, two days ago? You had 13 home runs. It's boring. You turn on the Major League Baseball channel and say, here are our highlights. And it's guys, balls flying over the fence. It's boring. Red Smith once said baseball is dull only to the dull. Well, now it's becoming dull to people who used to like it the way it was. All right. Well, George Will, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Let's go out to a game. Let's do what, 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 Let's do this out at Nats Park. Let's do it. That's Absolutely. the better setting for this. Absolutely. The Phillies and Braves are coming. All right. <laughs> Life Bibles. is real. Life is earnest. Yes. Bryce Harper. <laughs> Harper. Well, Harper's having – subtract his 2015 season. This is Harper. Yeah. About an 820 OPS, 250 betting 250 average. So, yeah. and, and by the way, he's striking out a lot more, though. Yep. That's fans are okay with that. Absolutely. <laughs> That's great. Absolutely. Bring it on. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining Enjoyed us. It. All right. That is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Uh, I want to thank our entire Powerhouse Politics team, especially Trevor Hayes. Doesn't he do a good job, Trevor? He's the best. The best. Man I mean, he really works hard. He, like, leaves it all on the field. Agreed. Uh, so I really want to thank him. Avery Miller, our entire Powerhouse Politics team. We'll be back, even if I may not be back next week, but I will be back soon. I'm working on a book, by the way. Did I tell you that? I haven't heard about that. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, thank you for listening to Powerhouse Politics. We will be back next week.